Here at Calvary 316, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. Presently, we are in the midst of a series through the book of Acts, but this morning, I want to start in a bit of a different place, and I know that this might come as a surprise to many of you. Actually, let's be honest, it might just be a shock, but Christians still sin. I know, I know. Aren't we supposed to be perfect? I mean, we're supposed to be sinless, right? I mean, we're supposed to be without fault, without blame, righteous, and yet it is true, right? that Christians still fall into sin. Amazingly, it is all too possible for those who have at one point humbly come to the foot of the cross, experienced the amazing grace and forgiveness of God, enjoyed the blessings of this new life, and set upon the exciting journey of faith to at some point find themselves once again sidetracked by the allure of the world and shackled by the clutches of sin. And if this weren't sad enough, as most can attest, when this unfortunate tale befalls the likes of you or I, the weight for the believer, for the Christian, the weight of condemnation, the weight of guilt is so overwhelming, so paralyzing, that we are simply rendered more often than not helpless than ever before. I mean, it's one thing for an unbeliever to sin against God in ignorance. But shouldn't those who have tasted the sweet fruit of salvation, those who have experienced glorious regeneration by the Spirit of God, those who have enjoyed the liberated life provided by Christ Jesus, and who have been endowed as sons and daughters of the Most High to know better? Shouldn't we know better? You know, sin, in the case of the believer, admires a person with an even deeper sense of unworthiness than I think it does in the lives of unbelievers. You see, compounded by our personal knowledge and experience of God's goodness, of his incredible demonstration of love by Jesus going to the cross, the sin of the believer, well, it very often, it holds a person captive by shame, shackled by the reality of inadequacy. Its vice grip is disgrace. It's true for many. The hardest journey to the cross ends up not being the first, but instead the second. Since this is the case, it's also true that the longer a person sits stuck in the muck, the harder and more difficult it ever becomes to escape. Tragically, I'm afraid one of the great tragedies of Christianity is that we have more people sitting on the sidelines defeated than we do victoriously running the race set before us. This morning, in the text we're going to be looking at, we will encounter what I believe to be a believer who is suffering from the paralysis of his own poor choices, his sinful choices. But we're also going to see that this unfortunate plight is based in a misconception of what it means to be saved of what salvation really means. Before we do, let's work our way through the text. Now we noted last Sunday that Saul, Saul was a preaching force to be reckoned with. As a Pharisee, Saul was not only equipped with a more expansive understanding of God's word than probably anyone else, but because he had encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was able to speak not just from a depth of intelligence, but from the depth of personal experience. Intelligence, and experience are a very powerful combination. 
Realize, knowledge, coupled with experience, it's kind of like when Jack Bauer finally discovers who the identity of the mole is within CTU. Nine, season, nine seasons of the carnage that follows tell us there's no escaping a man of experience now also having knowledge or a man of knowledge now having experience. You know, I was doing some research on that exact point of Jack Bauer. And do you know that not one person has ever died? No terrorist, no mole, no one has ever died in 24 during the commercial break. <laughs> Presumably, the best theory is that that's the time where Jack Bauer eats, sleeps, drinks, and uses the restroom because no one dies during the commercial break. It's amazing. Saw, experience, and knowledge made him a preaching force. Now Luke tells us that Saul, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and was able to prove from scripture that Jesus was both the Christ, this long awaited Messiah and the son of God. And yet sadly, in Acts 9, we have no record of his preaching producing any converts at this point in his life. As a matter of fact, it would appear the only thing Saul's preaching yielded was a desire within his audience to kill him. Never a good thing for a pastor to produce that kind of reaction amongst his audience. In Damascus, he preached. They wanted to kill him. In Jerusalem, he's preaching. They want to kill him. Is it any wonder that the apostles decide it would be wise to send Saul far away to Tarsus? That's our context. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 9, we read that then the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, though Luke's record here, the book of Acts, is only a partial history of all that God was doing, I love, I love it, that Luke takes moments like this to remind his readers that Jesus was doing way more than the things he was just able to record. Luke's purpose is to focus on the formation of the church, significant events that fostered its development, the rise of the apostle Paul and his role in the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman empire. He doesn't write everything about everything. He just takes moments like this just to let his readers know, I'm limited. There's a lot of other things that are going on during this time period. And with that in mind, I wanna make two just quick observations. First, at this point, Acts 2, 5, 7, and 8, Luke has presented to us the church in the singular tense. And yet now, in Acts 9, for the first time in the book, Luke mentions not the church, but instead the churches. It's plural. Specifically now locating churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. I love it. One universal church existing as many local church communities. The gospel's on the march and churches are being planted in proximity to believers. My second observation is simple. During the years marked by Saul's egress into Tarsus, this decade-long period, Luke tells us that these churches enjoyed peace and were edified. It would appear that beginning with Saul's departure, the church universally enjoyed a decade free of persecution, of opposition, of the beatings they had grown accustomed to. 
Because of this peace, they now have the opportunity to grow in both number and strength. The Greek word edified or okladimo, it means to build up, to strengthen. They had peace, and because of this peace, they were able to strengthen and to grow, to build. Now, while the text does seem to attribute this period of peace solely to Saul's sabbatical, history indicates that there may have been two other developments, two additional developments within the world that would have left the Jewish leaders preoccupied as a matter of fact, would have deterred their focus off the church and Christians onto something more pressing. First, there was during this season, this 10-year period, a domestic crisis at home. In 36 AD, a religious shockwave was felt through Jerusalem when the long-tenured high priest, a man we're familiar with, Caiaphas, suddenly died. He passed away. And what resulted was a power grab between the sons of Ananias, who had been the high priest before Caiaphas, but had been deposed by the Romans. His son-in-law was Caiaphas and acted as a puppet head, who had already died, so Ananias had died. Caiaphas now dies. The rest of the sons of Ananias begin to fight over who's going to be high priest and hold this powerful position. Jonathan initially becomes high priest in 36 AD, but then he was deposed a year later by his brother, Theophilus who would hold the position until he was ousted in 41 AD. Over the next four years, three unrelated men would rise and fall to power before Jonathan ultimately regained this powerful position in 44 AD. So it's very hard as a religious group, as a religious leadership, as a religious establishment to focus on the Christians when you're not even sure who is actually pulling the strings, who's in charge, who has control. So this period of domestic crisis no doubt created an avenue or fostered a bit of peace for the church. But then there was also a geopolitical crisis occurring during the same time period. On March 16, 37 AD, Tiberius Caesar, who had an equally long reign, he dies at the age of 77. And according to his will, he requested that his power be divided between his grandson, Gamelius, and his adopted son, Caligula. However, Caligula quickly had the will voided, Gamelius executed, and assumed power all to himself. Now, why does that matter? History presents Caligula as an insane tyrant known for his cruelty, sadistic tendencies, extravagant tastes, and sexually perverse nature. Beyond spending Rome into financial ruin and just a few quick years, he garnered no friends. When in 40 AD, he did something that was a total break from protocol. He demanded that everyone in the empire worship him as a physical living God. Now, after an attempt to have his statue placed in Jewish synagogues throughout the the Roman world and the riot that obviously ensued, Caligula, he does something demonstrable. He orders a a statue, a large statue of himself, be erected in the most holy parts of the Jewish temple. Well, realizing a civil war would ensue if the demand was carried out, the Roman governor, Publius, wisely decided to implement doing this for at least a year. Now, thankfully, over this course of the year, Caligula proved to be so volatile that in 41 AD, he became the first Roman emperor 
assassinated. With the approval of the Senate, his uncle Claudius, who was involved in the assassination plot, assumed the throne and a, peace, a period of peace stability would take place. But, it's tragic, his reign would be short-lived. For in 54 AD, he was assassinated by his wife, allowing another madman, his adopted son Nero, to assume power. And all of this is important for as we work our way through the rest of the book of Acts, these characters play a significant role in regards to the persecution of the church, also the general atmosphere of the region, and also play a particular role in the life of the Apostle Paul. It would seem that in addition to Saul's banishment, as the Jewish leaders jockeyed for power and fought against Roman intrusion, the church grew and was strengthened. While the narrative of Acts will pivot away from the apostles, will pivot away from the church in Jerusalem, and will very soon focus specifically on Saul and the spread of the gospel across the Roman world, beginning, well, at the end of chapter 11, before our author Luke makes this transition, he includes, he highlights for us three important developments or stories taking place within the life and through the life of the apostle Peter. So before he makes this shift at the end of chapter 11, with the remaining verses of chapter 9, chapter 10, and the first part of chapter 11, Luke gives us three important stories that highlight what's happening within this church during the period of peace while they're being edified, focusing on Peter. Now this is three stories highlighted from a period of 10 years, which means they're important and worthy of our detailed consideration. Verse 32, it came to pass. As Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. It would seem, as he had done in Samaria, that Peter felt a responsibility as an apostle to visit all of these new churches that were popping up throughout the region of Judea. He had done this in Samaria. Now he's doing it in Judea. I'm sure the presence of such a, a famous, noteworthy character, Peter, the Apostle Peter, it would have provided a continuity of message, him visiting your little local church. You can also imagine that it probably served to validate each ministry. You know, each ministry popping up, each church popping up, and then to have the Apostle Peter come and visit and share and minister like his stamp of approval. According to this verse, Peter's travels would lead him into the town of Lydda, which was approximately 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem and nine miles east of a city known as Joppa. Lydda was an important city that was situated along the main road that connected Jerusalem to the important seaport of Joppa. So it's a stop along the way. And there, verse 33, he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he rose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Though we know very little about this man, Aeneas. Luke, Dr. Luke, tells us he was paralyzed. The word paralyzed or paralo in the Greek can literally be translated to be sick with the palsy or to be sick of the palsy. 
first, in looking at Aeneas, I want you to consider the cause of his paralysis. The Greek word choice is clear that this was not a condition that Aeneas had been born with. He hadn't been born in this paralytic state. Nor does the vernacular presented indicate that his paralysis was the result of some tragic accident, like he had fallen off the roof and was now paralyzed. Instead, most scholars believe that his paralysis was the direct consequence or result of a venereal disease. Some speculate potentially even syphilis. Now, why is this detail important when it comes to Aeneas? Understand, Aeneas knew that he was suffering, not something he had been born with, or something that had befallen him in an accident, but instead he was suffering the result of his own sinful, stupid choices. Like Aeneas understood that there was no one to blame for his paralysis other than himself. He couldn't blame his parents, couldn't blame friends, couldn't blame a faulty ladder, couldn't blame the lack of a scissor lift. Like he couldn't blame God. Like he knew that what he had been stuck with, this paralysis he was mired in, was only the results of his own choices. He had no one to blame but himself. As a Jewish man, Aeneas had an acute awareness of right or wrong. I mean, he couldn't blame to be, claim to be ignorant. He understood what action was permissible and which ones were abominable. And yet, he still made the decision, even knowing these things, to disobey the will and purposes of God by deliberately engaging in behavior he knew was A, sinful, and B, equally destructive to himself. Now, before we all begin to pick up stones and hurl them at Aeneas, I think we can agree that just because you know something is wrong, just because you know something's sinful and you're aware that it could lend itself to destructive results in your own life uh, doesn't make it any easier to resist. You know that, right? Like, you know this is wrong, and you know this could blow up in my face, and you know all of these things, but still, the allure, the pull, the temptation still exists. It's, It's hard to resist sin. It's kind of the one thing we're really good at. You know, in a weird twist, It's actually the forbidden nature of sin that ends up making it all the more appealing. In his short story, Puttenhead Wilson, Mark Twain wrote, I love this quote. He says, Adam was but human. This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was not in forbidding the serpent. Then Adam would have eaten the serpent. There is a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. Isn't that so true? While we don't know whether or not his sin was one bad decision or a series of little ones, it does seem evident that Aeneas was experiencing nothing more than a self-inflicted wound. His paralysis was the natural consequence of his sinful choices. And with that in mind, consider the result of his paralysis. Luke says that his paralysis had left him bedridden 
eight years. Aeneas. Aeneas was immovable, incapacitated, powerless to do anything to right his wrongs or atone for his sins, to fix himself. A series of bad choices had left him in this sad and hopeless state, unable to escape. Aeneas could sympathize with the final stanza of the Eagles hit song, Hotel California. I'll read it for you. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. Relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. It's true. Ananias was not only stuck, but pardon the expression, his life sucked. Kind of rhyme is why I went with it. You know, one of the craftiest lies, sneakiest lies, that Satan has ever whispered into human ears is that obedience to God somehow restricts a person's ability to fully experience all that life has to offer. It is a dirty, dirty lie. Even in the garden, right? You remember, the Garden of Eden. What did Satan, the serpent of old, whisper into the ear of Eve? He, he told her that God was actually holding out on them by commanding that they refrain from eating the forbidden food. I'll read it for you. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, the serpent said to the woman, yeah. <laughs> that's not there, I'm adding that. You will not surely die. What? For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I've got a question for you. Do you think Aeneas's ability to enjoy life, like to get the most out of life, was enhanced by his rebellion against God or severely limited? He couldn't work his legs no more. Like, like his experience with life was horribly limited. Sadly, his rebellion proved to do nothing more than rob him, to steal from him of the life that he would have been able to enjoy if he had simply obeyed God. Thomas Watson once said, when the pleasure of sin is soon gone, the sting remains. And the moment of temptation. When you're lured to do something you know you shouldn't, please consider, think for a moment, Who's speaking into your ear? Consider the nature of the individual doing the whispering, whether it be Satan or the still small voice of God. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief does not come, but to what? To steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. But he continues by saying, I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. You know, one of the things I find most interesting about this passage is what's missing. Like, did you catch it as we were reading through it? What, what's kind of absent from the text? Like, there's no mention of Aeneas crying out for Peter's help, is there? Like, there's no mention of him petitioning God for mercy. Like, Example after example after example we find in Scripture. He doesn't say a word 
It's as though Peter just interjects into his life and he wasn't asking for anyone to be interjecting. You see, in many ways, Luke presents Aeneas as a man, well, who's come to terms, come to grips with his tragic plight. It's almost as though Aeneas has accepted his paralysis. He's embraced his condition as appropriate punishment for the crime he had committed. Now, though this is quite confusing when placed in context of other miracles, I do have a theory that might explain this un... This bizarre perspective of Aeneas. Like, don't forget, look back how Luke sets the scene. He says that Peter did what? Peter came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda, and there, not Lydda, but the saints, that he found a man named Aeneas. You see, according to the way that these two sentences are constructed and interconnected, Luke is telling us that Peter found Aeneas among the saints of Lydda. Like Aeneas is not the tale of an unbeliever. Instead, Aeneas was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. He had been bought, purchased by the blood of Christ. So why was he paralyzed? Now I can admit, it may very well be that Aeneas was a believer experiencing the natural effects of the lifestyle he had once lived before he came to Christ. However, I gravitate more to the opinion that Aeneas was a Christian before he had made this horrible mistake. Let me explain. It's interesting that Luke, he goes out of his way to give us kind of a weird detail, doesn't he? He tells us that Aeneas had been bedridden for eight years. It's fairly specific, isn't it? Obviously, as a doctor, he's wanting to let us know that this was a contracted paralysis. But could it be that Luke includes this detail, this marker for a larger purpose? I think so. You know, at this point in our travels through Acts, it's been nine to ten years since Pentecost. And though a conjecture, it seems possible that Aeneas, it seems likely that Aeneas, might have been one of the 3,000 who converted at Pentecost, or maybe one of the 5,000 who just a few weeks later converted following Peter's sermon there in the portico. See, if this is the case, it may very well be that Aeneas doesn't petition for Peter's help because he doesn't feel as though he's worthy. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. I believe of all of the stories that Luke could have included in this section of Acts. Remember, he picks three. He picks this one. Why? Because Aeneas presents the prototypical believer who has now found himself paralyzed by his own sin. Imagine what goes through his mind. <laughs> it's gone through mine. Jesus saved me. He did all of that for me on the cross. And then I let him down. I did such a stupid thing. And in context of all that Christ has done for me, I can't believe I did this. You know, maybe my paralysis, it means that I need to be set on the shelf. Have you ever thought that? Maybe, maybe I might still be a Christian, but I should be on the sidelines. I shouldn't have a role in the spread of the gospel. I shouldn't have a role in ministry. I shouldn't have a role within the church. I look at what I did. I should just be bedridden. And with this in mind, consider the miracle. <laughs> Our text 
doesn't say that Peter heals Aeneas. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, our text is clear. Peter doesn't heal Aeneas. This statement, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you, would actually be better translated from the original language, Aeneas, the Lord Jesus is healing you. You see, Peter was doing nothing more here than reminding Aeneas of a work that Jesus was presently doing in his life, a work he had forgotten about. It's as though Peter looks at Aeneas and says, brother, there's no need for you to be paralyzed by your sin. Jesus has already forgiven you. He's in the process of healing you. Get up, dude, get going. You have no need for this bed. Why are you bedridden, moping around like Eeyore? Get with it, man. You know, I, I believe one of the main reasons that Aeneas and many Christians end up paralyzed by sin, why we find ourselves bedridden, even when Jesus is doing a work, is that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of salvation. I'll say that. I'll be honest. I think we have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what salvation actually is. You know, often many people see salvation as a life-changing singular event, when instead they should see it as a life-altering continual experience. Let me explain. In 2 Corinthians 1 verses 9 and 10, we have an example of something you've probably never heard about. It's called progressive salvation. Progressive salvation. I'll, I'll read you the text. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, past experience, from so great a death and does deliver us, a present experience, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, a future experience not a singular one-time event, but a continual thing that we experience. Let me break it down real quick. Salvation is a past experience. When my soul is saved from the penalty of sin, because I've placed my faith in Jesus as atoning sacrifice, and in that very moment of conversion, I am made alive in Christ Jesus, being filled with his Holy Spirit. So salvation is a past experience but it is also a present experience in my life where I am being saved from the power of sin through the sanctifying work of the indwelling Spirit of God. But thirdly, salvation is yet a future experience when my body will be saved, is saved, being saved, will be saved from the presence of sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence. When I die, and what is corrupted receives incorruption. When I enter the glorious halls of heaven and experience eternal life apart from this ucky mucky thing called sin, the finished work of salvation. Sadly, because most Christians see salvation as this life-changing singular event whereby they're saved. And we use that a lot, don't we? I'm saved. True, but incomplete. You see, because we have this idea 
of it being this moment in time in the past where I came forward in tears, when I repented of sin, when I asked Christ to save me. We see it as this, and because of that, because we don't see it as a progressive work, but a singular work, it's so easy to succumb to the paralysis of sin. Like Aeneas, <laughs> Jesus saved me and now I failed him. He died for me, but I let him down. He freed me, but look at myself. I've placed myself back in chains. Is there any wonder Christians would rather remain stuck in the muck than return to the cross? And yet, this is all based on a faulty understanding of salvation. The Bible is clear that as a life-altering, continual experience, Jesus has saved me from the penalty of sin, is presently saving me from the power of sin, amen, and will one day save me from the presence of sin, a work in my soul that continues as a work in my life and will one day affect my future. You know, it's radical to consider, but since salvation is designed to be a progressive work of God, then it means that it's a work that God would know I would always need. We might be shocked that as Christians we sin, but you know God isn't. If not, there would be no need for salvation to be progressive. It could be singular because boom, I'm perfect now, but I'm not. You see, Jesus is aware that I still struggle with the power of sin, which is why he's willing to save me from the power of sin. He knows that I struggle with the temptation of sin. He knew that I would still screw up. And he anticipates my failures. He anticipates my mistakes, which is why salvation is designed to be a continual active work. How silly is it then that we might be held captive by something Jesus is presently saving us from? This is the whole point Peter makes to Aeneas. What are you doing? Jesus is healing you. Why are you laying there? Get up, man. He's healing you. It's awesome, the implications. Think of it like this. If you owed a debt that you could not pay, and I made a one-time deposit to your account that rendered you debt-free, you know, because I have all that money. And then you ended up falling back into the hole. Well, it would make sense why you'd be hesitant to come back and ask for more assistance. However, if my solution to your debt problem was to link our accounts together so that when your account inevitably dips, mine automatically satisfies the balance, it's a continual work. Well, you wouldn't beat yourself up. You wouldn't beat yourself up over mismanagement. You'd be disappointed. You'd be sad, but it would be already satisfied, which means that at that juncture, you would just be trying to figure out a way to avoid making the same mistake because the mistake you just made was forgiven. There would be no need to be paralyzed because my account is satisfied continuously always, because that's what salvation does. A.W. Tozer once wrote, a man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. This is man's greatest tragedy, 
and God's heaviest grief. There's nothing that grieves God more than to see a believer stuck and paralyzed by his sin when his work on the cross is actively trying to satisfy it. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. For many believers, the hardest journey to the cross is not the first one, but the second one, the third one, the fourth one. As a matter of fact, why don't you quit making journeys to the cross and instead just pop up a tent there to just live there, to constantly be overcome by his grace, to be motivated by his love. Friend, may you no longer be held captive by that which Jesus is presently working to save you from. The grace of God blazed a trail to the cross that you've already walked once before. This time you have the luxury of knowing the way. <laughs> when the devil sings his age-old song, and he beats that loud, obnoxious condemnation drum. Plead the blood. Make your voice heard. For your God still has the final word. And you know what? Now that all of your chains of sin are gone, by the power of his awesome love, you are free. You're free. For he has and is and will still deliver you. I love the result of this story. And I pray the same experience happens in your life this morning, especially those who feel paralyzed by sin. But after reminding Aeneas that Jesus was still actively at work in his life, what did he do? <laughs> he arose immediately. Why should you be paralyzed by your sin? Bedridden, stuck in the muck, when the same salvation that saved you once is actively able to save you again and again and again? Today and tomorrow and the days to come. And so, Father, with that word, we ask that this settle into our heart, that we might not just be hearers of your word, but, Lord, that we might be doers.